Well, I invite you, if you have a Bible, to go ahead and open with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, beginning in verse 36, and we'll read through chapter 16, verse 15. Acts 15, 36 through 16, 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew in front of you, and you'll find this on page 784 or 824 of the church Bible there. And you've probably seen from, you may have seen from the bulletin, uh, the title of this morning's message is Messes, Misdirection, and Multiplication. And the, the essence of the message is that in bringing His perfect will to pass, God uses ingredients that don't always seem to belong together. It's sort of like a, a casserole. You know, I, uh, I made some dietary changes a few years ago, and so I really don't eat casseroles anymore. Um, but before I changed my diet, I never met a casserole that I didn't like. And I don't know if you're that way. You know, there's some, some things where the ingredients individually, I would not want them. You know, if you ask me, do you like mushrooms? No. You like cream of mushroom soup? No. How about if I dump it in a pan with some green beans and put some dried onions on top? All right. Can I have seconds on that green bean casserole, you know? There are some things that just, they, they seem like they don't go together, and yet they're wonderful together. And, and the point being, um, not just accidentally somebody makes something good out of them, but it's the recipe, right? That on purpose, they put those things in a dish together and prepare them and they're just wonderfully uh, tasty. If they weren't, we wouldn't ever have any church uh, food gatherings, right? If it weren't for casseroles. Well, at the, at the outset of Paul's second missionary journey, we, we have an example of how God fashions his plan out of messes, misdirection, and multiplication. And we find it in Acts 15, beginning in verse 36. So let's look there together now, and I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts 15, beginning in verse 36, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, who was a believer. But his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted, to, wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. 
And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you as always for your written word that you have revealed truth to us and not left us on this earth grasping about in the dark, trying to discover what's true and right and good. You have revealed it and had it written down for us. And so, Lord, when we open the scriptures, we do so with the belief that it is your word, that it is living and active, that it is able to pierce to the very center of our being, discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, and move us as you would want to move us. So, Lord, we need your word to do and be that uh, exactly for us this morning. So we ask that you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. As this passage opens up here, Paul and Barnabas are still in Antioch. They had come back there from Jerusalem where they had traveled to raise an important question to the apostles and elders. And if you were here last week, you may recall that they had gone up to what we refer to often as the Jerusalem Council. The question had grown out of the fact that on their first missionary journey, God had opened a door to the Gentiles. And uh, the dispute arose when that news spread of the door opening to the Gentiles. Some Jews insisted that those Gentile converts had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so a council was assembled in Jerusalem made up of some of the elders from Antioch and the elders and apostles from Jerusalem. And they decided that nothing more than faith was required for the Gentiles to be saved. But you may remember that that didn't mean that nothing was required of them, right? Nothing more than faith was required in order to be forgiven, but much is required for those who are forgiven, and they actually 
uh, outlined four requirements of a dietary and moral nature for the Gentile believers to follow, not in order for them to be saved, but in order for the church to be unified, for them to be able to actually live together and fellowship together as Jew and Gentile. So they drafted a letter and sent Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch with Silas and Judas, another Judas who we never hear anything else about. But they went back to Antioch to deliver that news. And so sometime later, Paul and Barnabas began making plans for what would become their second missionary journey. And that's what unfolds here in the text that we read this morning. And while they had a a fairly conservative mission in view, that is Paul and Barnabas, they they had a fairly conservative mission in view for this second trip they were about to make. God had plans to send Paul to faraway lands with the gospel. They had no idea of that at the time. Their plans were not God's plans, but he brought his plan to pass through messes, multiplication, and misdirection. And I'm actually going to take them in that order, multiplication second rather than third. Uh, But let's look first at the messes, as I've called it. Verse 36 tells us that the original purpose Paul and Barnabas had in mind for this trip was to return to the cities that they had visited before and to see how those people were. You see that in verse 36. Again, that's, that's a fairly conservative mission, wouldn't you say? Not particularly ambitious. Retrace our steps. Let's see how those churches are doing. And then one particular planning detail becomes a source of a significant problem for them. It's in verses 37 and 38. Look there in chapter 15. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You may remember reading back in chapter 13 that uh, fairly early on the first missionary journey, Mark left and returned to Jerusalem. They had gone to Cyprus and across that island, encountered the sorcerer, basically, this Jewish false prophet uh, named um, Elimus or Bar-Jesus. You may remember that whole episode there. And then they actually sailed from Cyprus back over to the mainland. And when they landed, Mark said, I'm going back to Jerusalem. No explanation as to why from Luke. We don't know the backstory there. But it's clear here in Acts 15 that Barnabas and Paul have very different perspectives on that. And Barnabas, you'll recall, is known for his encouragement. In, in fact, his, the name Barnabas is actually a nickname that means son of encouragement. And in addition to that, Colossians 4.10 tells us Mark was his cousin. And so, more than likely, Barnabas is primarily concerned with Mark here, right? Barnabas is probably primarily concerned with Mark. He's an encourager. Um, This is his cousin. By the way, this is the same Barnabas as an encourager that was the one that put his arm around Paul who he's now in a sharp disagreement with. When the church didn't want to accept him, you know, hard to accept people who are trying to kill you sometimes. (laughs) And um, 
Barnabas was the guy who put his arm around him and said, he's, 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 a real, he's the real deal. God's really saved him. Barnabas is the one who went and found him when he was in Antioch in Tarsus and brought him back to involve him in the life of the church. Barnabas is the reason Paul has this ministry. He's that kind of encourager. And he's, he's probably primarily concerned about Mark here. Paul, on the other hand, seems primarily to be concerned about the mission. It says he thought it best not to take someone who had not gone with them to the work. And again, it, there's not a whole lot more explanation than that, but think about this for a minute, that they had taken Mark along to assist. And when he withdrew, he took his assistants with him. You know, when you, when you make a plan around people who have roles and responsibilities, and then they're no longer there to meet their responsibility, um, that can be problematic. And you know, somebody's got to fill in the gaps and that sort of thing. And Paul thought it best not to take one with them who didn't finish the trip with him the last time. Probably from his perspective, eternal life is on the line for people they've never met before. And they don't want to, he doesn't want to risk jeopardizing the mission to take the gospel to them. So he says, it's not, I think it's not best to take Mark. Now, what I want you to notice here is there is no assignment of blame anywhere in the text. Not even a hint. So, in fact, most of what I just said is a bit speculative even. Right? That we don't, we don't know exactly what, what, what Barnabas's reason were or, or arguments. We don't know what the different perspective Paul had really was. There's no assignment of blame. Not even a hint of a suggestion that one of them is wrong. And this is actually a little bit hard for us to process maybe because when there's a dispute, we, we want somebody to be wrong, usually the other person, right? But it's actually fairly common for, for believers who are people of conviction to have very different convictions. To be fallen people living in a fallen world and just not to see things perfectly and, and, and it just can get messy. I should mention, even though that's common among believers, most of the time, um, the, the right response is not to separate from each other. So I do, I do want to just add this qualifier because as I was actually just saying in the new members class, you know, the book of Acts is is more descriptive than it is prescriptive. It's just describing what happened in the life of the church. You, wanna, you don't want to take everything as a command to follow. And what we know from elsewhere in Scripture are things like in Ephesians 4 where it says, make every effort to maintain unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, right? Colossians, I think it's in Colossians 3 that says, if you have a complaint against another, forgive them. It doesn't even say, here's how do you go about resolving the complaint. It just says, forgive them. Matthew 18, when you do, when someone has sinned against you, go to them. 
hopefully you're going to win your brother back. Philippians 2, look out for not only your own interests, but also the interests of others. Consider others more highly than yourselves, etc. In other words, more of what the New Testament tells us is work hard at maintaining unity. And that often means even though you see things differently, you give up some of your own interest, your own will, that you're moving toward the other person. Which again, I say that, that's all a little bit parenthetical, so you don't take this as license to go away and separate from some, someone uh, when you actually need to work hard at finding unity and maintaining unity in a relationship. But it, but it is important to observe that nobody was wrong here. They took up the same ministry task and just didn't agree on how to approach it. And it is possible for people who love the Lord and are committed to his service to disagree sharply about something and no one be wrong about it. That is possible. Just to see things differently and nobody be wrong about it. Because as I said, when fallen people live together in a fallen world, it just gets messy. And God uses those messes to accomplish his purposes. And here we see, or we begin to see immediately, that God brings, a, brings good out of this messiness in the way of multiplication. They form two teams instead of one. It actually becomes a multiplication. Barnabas, it says, took Mark, and they went in a counterclockwise route by sea to Cyprus. If you're looking at the map on the back of your, is there a map on the back of your bulletin? I, hope, I actually don't even have a bulletin. Very good. All right. Things went as planned. That's good. Thank you, Vicki. <laughs> um, but if you look there, you'll notice that there's a little dotted line number one, and that shows Barnabas and Mark leaving Antioch and, and sailing over to Cyprus, which is the same route that Barnabas and Paul took on the first journey. Paul and Silas went clockwise on an overland route to Derby and Lystra, and that's number two on the map. So you have two teams uh, really out doing essentially the same kind of work of encouraging um, these new believers and even preaching the gospel in new places as opportunity presents itself. You've got multiplication, but it also says not only there are two teams, but there was a disciple there named Timothy. And we read here, Timothy was the child of a mixed race marriage, his mother being Jewish, his father Greek. And Paul wanted to take Timothy with him. He's well thought of, it says, by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. But he knew that his uncircumcision was going to be a stumbling block for the Jews. And so he had Timothy circumcised. Now we know, if, again, if you were here last week, you know this was a highly contentious issue, right? This was the whole purpose in that Jerusalem council, a highly contentious issue. Timothy was not required to be circumcised. That was a decision the Jerusalem council made. Although as a half-Jewish man, it was certainly appropriate for him to be, sort of from any angle. But Paul just seems to recognize that for the sake of the advance of the gospel, it's better for Timothy to be circumcised here, to move out of the way an obstacle, a secondary issue 
that's likely to get in the way of primary issues. Can you appreciate that? Do you kind of know that from your own experience? That when you know something secondary is just going to be a hang-up for people, if you, can, if you can move it out of the way, you can focus on primary things, sometimes you're better off. And that seems to be the case here. As New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says, not every issue is worth starting a war over when it comes to the gospel and the ethnic unity of the church. Not, a, not every issue is worth starting a war over. And so he has Timothy circumcised to make him part of the team here. But we, we, know, we know more about Timothy, right? The student of the Bible is well acquainted with Timothy beyond this introduction here. We know that he was the recipient of two letters from Paul that bear his name, right? First and second Timothy. That's this Timothy that we're talking about. In other letters, Paul described Timothy as a beloved child in the Lord, a true child in the faith. They had this father-son relationship, even though he, they weren't really father and son. But when he spoke of being Timothy's spiritual father and Timothy being spiritually his son, it was, it was more affectionate than when we just sometimes use that that language in the life of the church. There's something really deep here between them. His true child in the faith. We know he spoke uh, to the Philippians about Timothy and said that he had no one else like him who would be genuinely concerned about their welfare. That's what he said about Timothy. And then at the end of his life, the end of Paul's life in a Roman prison, he wrote his last known letter to Timothy and asked him to come visit him. We might uh, be interested to sort of make a footnote uh, of the fact that he also asked Timothy to bring Mark with him. That, that somewhere between this moment and the years of ministry that would follow, Paul and Mark were reconciled, and, and, and Paul even says to Timothy, bring Mark, for he is useful to me in ministry. This young man that he thought wasn't best to take with him on this particular journey. But the point here is to sort of recall some of what the Bible tells us about Timothy, because they have a special relationship, he and Paul. And let's consider, how does this special young man become part of Paul's ministry team? How does he become a ministry companion? Well, it's in this messy context that instead of Barnabas and Paul proceeding with Mark to Cyprus, that's what Barnabas and Mark did, right? They went to Cyprus, they just retraced their steps. Most likely would have been what Barnabas and Paul would have done as they said, let's go visit the other cities, just follow the same route. Instead of Barnabas and Paul proceeding to Cyprus with Mark as their assistant. Paul went with Silas directly to Derby with no assistant. And so they meet Timothy at the beginning of their journey instead of at the end. You, you may or may not remember that on the first missionary journey, Lystra and Derby were the last places they visited before backtracking and going back home. In this case, Derby, Derby and Lystra are the first place Paul goes to. 
So he meets Timothy at the beginning of his journey rather than the end, and he has no assistant. There's a place, in other words, to bring Timothy on in a place that Mark otherwise would have served with him and Barnabas, or that's what was proposed. Now, again, that calls for a little bit of speculation because could, could God have worked it out for Timothy to become part of the team if they did a journey in a different direction under different circumstances? Yes, of course. But that's not what happened. The point is, this multiplication, not only of the number of mission teams they have, but, but in adding Timothy even to the team, this special co-labor with Christ happened in the context of this relational mess between Paul and Barnabas. And God used it. God didn't just go, oh, look at, look at what you did now. Let me see what I can do with this mess. It were ingredients that God chose to use. He's not responsible for the discord and the disagreement or whatever. And yet, quite by his design, uses those as ingredients in the casserole, so to speak, that he is making. And so what looks very messy on a relational level, God used to bring about multiplication. And then finally we see God using the ingredients of misdirection. Misdirection. While they had originally set out with plans to visit the churches that they planted on their first journey, somewhere along the way, Paul decided to press into new territory. So we're just going to have to connect the dots there. Again, if you look back in, in chapter 15, verse 36, it just says, let's go back to the cities we've visited before and see how those people are. That's their purpose initially. It doesn't ever say when there was a decision to go beyond that, but um, somewhere along the way he made a decision. And then verses 6 through 8, we see how this next leg of the journey unfolds. Let's look there together in chapter 16, verses 6 through 8. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by the Mycenae, they went down to Troas. Now we should mention where it references Asia there. That's not the continent of Asia that we think of. That's not the continent that we call Asia today. Uh, but a Roman province in what is now Turkey. But Asia did contain several cities uh, that would later be touched by the gospel, including Colossae and Ephesus. And it says the Holy Spirit did not permit him to preach the gospel there. Do you find that curious at all? The Holy Spirit would not let them preach the gospel in a region that included Colossae and Ephesus. So basically, as they set out on this uh, journey, they had tried to go to the left, and God said no. And so then Bithynia was more or less to the right on the path that they're, they're walking. It's northeast of there. Again, if, you're, if you look along on the map, you'll, you'll sort of see that. Uh, Asia, a little bit of the... Uh, to the southwest of that line they traveled, and Bithynia up to the northeast. 
Bithynia was sort of a right turn. The Spirit didn't allow them to go there either. Bithynia would also later become a region of great importance or significance in the life of the church. Um, it would later be where the city of Constantinople would be located. That's basically the eastern capital of the church, if you will. A prominent city in, the, in, the, in church history. Nicaea was also located in that region. Nicaea, the, the location of the church council in the 4th century, out of which came the Nicene Creed that's been affirmed and recited down through church history. Nicaea is located in Bithynia. Places that God intended for the gospel to go, but not now. And not by the mouth of Paul. And so what does Paul do? He just keeps going. He tried to make a left turn. God wouldn't let him do that. He tried to make a right turn. God wouldn't let him do that. And he kept going on down until he got to Troas. And then he has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over to preach to us. And then he concludes that's where God is calling them to go, uh, to preach over in Macedonia. I actually didn't put my hand on a bulletin. I don't remember what number that is on the map. Um, but there's, they've actually gone all the way to the coast in Troas, and then uh, they end up sailing over to the region of Macedonia. So by that chain of events that we just read about in verses 6 through 8 and that I just commented on, the gospel reaches the European continent, what we know now is Europe. And the first, the first convert on the continent of Europe is this woman named Lydia. And that happens as the first fruit of a journey that they did not plan to take. That was not on their itinerary when they left home. And what we'll find as we, as we continue reading in the book of Acts, this whole world opens up to them um, as they continue on this journey, all these cities that were never on the itinerary. But let's just examine this a little bit more closely, how God used this misdirection, as I've called it, to accomplish his purpose. I, and I've referred to their attempts to preach in um, Asia and Bithynia as misdirection only because they turned out not to be the direction God wanted them to go, right? But I don't mean to suggest that they did anything wrong. It, that doesn't suggest that they shouldn't have tried to go there or that they didn't listen to the Lord well enough in the first place. Once again, there's no hint of that whatsoever. In fact, what I want to do is make quite the opposite point, that not only were they not doing anything wrong. They were actually doing something quite right. Why is that? Because Jesus told his followers to make disciples of all nations, right? He said in Acts 1.8, they would be witnesses to the ends of the earth. He told Paul he was God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel. And all Paul is doing right here is just obeying what he knows God's called him to do. 
So he goes out on this journey and says, I'm called to the Gentiles. I believe there's some Gentiles over there in Asia. Holy Spirit says, nope, not Asia. Not right now. Okay, there's Gentiles in Bithynia. Let's go to Bithynia. No, 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 no. Not Bithynia. Not right now. And so he just goes down to Troas, obeying what God has called him to do. He doesn't hang out in Lystra waiting for God to tell him where to go next. Right? He's not dependent on a word from the Lord to tell him where to go to obey what he knows he set him apart to do with the rest of his life. And one of the principles we derive from that is you don't need to wait for the Holy Spirit to tell you specifically what God has already revealed to us generally. You don't need to wait for the Holy Spirit to tell you specifically to obey what God has already said to do generally. So for example, he's, he has said, continues to say to the church, preach the gospel to all na nations. That's one of the things we know is his will. I don't have to sit on the porch swing waiting for the Holy Spirit to tell me what to get up off of the porch swing and do so that I can be in the will of God. I can obey what he's already revealed for me to do. He said, and, and uh, I want to say it's 1 Thessalonians 4, I actually didn't look up this reference. This is the will of God concerning you, your sanctification. His will is to make you more holy. Be obedient to cooperating with him in that. You know what? You, you, can, you can just drive over to the Walmart right on uh, Market Street. And, and by the time you have found a parking place, you will probably have had an opportunity to work on your holiness. Because, you know, you'd be frustrated at some traffic control issue or somebody. You'll be working out your own salvation with fear and trembling before you have even found a parking place. You know, in other words, we, we, can, we can be obedient to seek his will in ways that he's already revealed generally. We don't need to live life waiting for him to tell us to do specifically what he's already revealed to us to do generally. And God had sovereignly planned for the gospel to cross over into Europe. That was the plan. And this is, this is, this is my, my, my premise or whatever, my assumption going into this is that God made a casserole here out of recipes that he put in the dish on purpose. It's not like Paul and Barnabas messed something up at the outset and then God had to scramble and go, well, let me figure out what I can do with these broken eggs. God's sovereign plan was for the gospel to go to Europe, but he did not initially disclose that plan. Now, catch the full significance of this, they had marked out hundreds of miles of obedience before the vision came in Troas. You see that? I mean, it's, it's probably around 400 miles, somewhere close to 400 miles, depending on where you 
put their point of departure, but from like that Lystra and Derby area, it's probably around 400 miles that they've traveled before they got to Troas and had a vision to go over to Macedonia. Paul doesn't have any idea where this is leading, but he simply obeyed what God had called him to do, allowed God to govern over any of his misdirection. He tried to make a left turn, tried to make a right turn. God just governs over that in order to get him where he intends for him to be. And there are, there are many, many Christians who want a Troas kind of vision for every significant decision they make. In fact, I would suggest there are some believers who really never fully rest in the will of God because they, because they can't sustain the ordinary for long enough to make it to Troas. They can't, they, they can't just sustain the ordinary journey of the 400 miles that it takes to get to Troas where the vision is appointed to come. And they sort of distract themselves that God must want me to do something else or whatever, but, but just needing a Troas kind of vision for every major decision. And I think, frankly, that, that this truth here, these truths in this passage really liberate us from that. That we can simply obey God in ordinary things day after ordinary day in the integrity of our heart and God can make good with any mess that you make. He can make good with any misdirection that you find yourself in if we will simply be obedient desiring his will seeking it with integrity of heart and God can make something glorious out of the messes and the direct misdirection by way of multiplication and he intends um, for himself to be glorified in the earth, sets about doing that and gives us the privilege of being used as a part of it. And I'm thankful to be able to say that. Well, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, not only as I prayed earlier in your word, but just in the person of Jesus Christ. that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, entered our world to show us the way out, as it were. Thank you, Lord, that you sought us and found us and that you now involve us in your pursuit of other people all over the planet. And Lord, I know that I am personally encouraged by the fact that even Paul, who we think of as being a super Christian, 
didn't know what you had in store, what you had in mind every step of the way. But he knew what you had called him to, and he was just obedient to live that out. And so God, would you show us what that looks like in decisions great and small, in relationships of one sort or another. Lord, would you just show us what it looks like to obey what we know you've called us to, to desire your will above our own, and then allow you to direct us into it. Lord, I pray that you would open hearts today to really see on a personal level how that applies to their lives, that we would live in the liberty that we find in just obeying you with integrity in ordinary things until you choose to do something extraordinary. So Lord, we live our lives surrendered to you. Would you be glorified in us? In Jesus' name, amen.